The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots. I'm Kate Andrews and I'm joined by our editor Fraser Nelson and Gavin Barwell, former number 10 chief of staff to Theresa May. And it's the former prime minister who is the topic of today's podcast. Theresa May is publishing a new book, The Abuse of Power, that looks at her time in Downing Street and the turbulent, tumultuous time that it was, not just amongst politicians here in the UK, but in Europe as well. Fraser, you do a book review for The Telegraph this week, uh, which it looks like you've given three out of five stars. Why don't you give us a quick sum up of, of your thoughts on the book and then we can dive into some of the specifics. Well, Theresa May has not written a memoir. Um, obviously, what a journalist like me would want to go to is find out what she was really thinking at these these crucial moments, what made her recall the snap election, what went through her mind when she found out she'd lost the majority. But she doesn't really um, look at this. So it's not really an historical document in the way that the, the typical memoirs of former premiers tend to be. She has instead decided to look at, I guess other people's mistakes, or rather the abuse of power as she sees it, not her own, the abuses of power in government in general. I give it um, three stars because despite my disappointment at um, what she could have said but didn't, I think this is a really important subject. Why do calamities happen in government? And she was actually trying to make quite uh, quite an ambitious attempt to answer this really important question. Why was it that so many died in Grenfell when the local, um, when the residents had such concerns? Why was it that the families of 97 people who died at Hillsborough had such an ordeal trying to get justice to correct the public record and what happened? Now, throughout this, she diagnoses a kind of common theme, partly is institutional corruption. When an institution becomes so concerned to cover for itself, to cover up its mistakes, that it will instinctively not hear any um, voices and, and shut it down. Then there is political corruption. She basically blames even Margaret Thatcher for being pro-to-police. Tories, she says, are so keen on law and order that they weren't really prepared to notice or to recognise police corruption. And throughout, she also talks about the menace of public life of politicians who are in it for their own reasons, for their own vanity, who've lost sight of public service. And in conclusion, she says, on a rather optimistic note, that if we manage to find better politicians who do put themselves and service first, then the abuse of power might stop. So that's her, you know, she, she comes up with several examples of, of corruption. And I think she's quite right to ask deeper institutional questions about why a big government can fail. Although I would have liked her to ask a lot more questions of why, for example, in the Windrush debacle, that happened after she was at the Home Office for six years. Now, if it's the case, that is just a, if it's good politicians, why did it happen under her? Why was she so blind as to what was going on? But then again, when you read a book like that, you can see, you know, even you can appreciate what the author doesn't intend to tell you. Like, for example, the Hillsborough, she thought, OK, the Tories were so determined to, to see football fans as a menace 
but the and the police were as well, but they didn't realize her job was to protect them. I'd say the same was true for her in Windrush, that she had come to see herself as the only person in the cabinet who was really trying to stand up to control immigration, and that the hostile environment policy was had defects, but it was almost a deliberate strategy to make life difficult for undocumented migrants. She So she was so concerned about that, she didn't think that the real problem would be um, kicking out people who had every right to be here. Gavin, when the former prime minister first told you that she was going to be writing this book, what were your immediate thoughts and what do you make on the timing of the release? So it doesn't surprise me that she's written the kind of book that Fraser described. Quite soon after we left Number 10, I had a conversation with her because I'd kept not a diary, but a sort of day book during my two years as chief of staff. And I sort of said to her, look, if you want this in order to write the kind of traditional prime ministerial autobiography, here it is. And she came back and said, actually, I don't want to write that kind of book. I think I will write something down the line, but that's not what I want to do. So it's not that surprising. I think the subject matter, if you think back to her first speech outside number 10, that sort of theme of burning injustices was there then. And as Fraser said, I think it's a really useful contribution to debate, although people will will notice the things that aren't there. They'll wish they'd heard more about some of the other things that she doesn't touch on in the book. And I think timing, she's wanted to let a bit of, of, of time pass um, before coming out with the book rather than sort of rushing into it immediately after uh, after leaving number 10. So not surprised on either sort of content or or timing. I mean, you can't really accuse her, Kate, of making mischief. She barely mentions David Cameron, Boris Johnson, etc. When Liz Truss's book comes out in next year about why the Tories are about to lose the next election, I think that will be, you know, perhaps unhelpful to Rishi Sunak. But um, Theresa May here is it's almost entirely devoid of political gossip. I know some journalists who are looking at it, thinking of running the passages in the in newspaper, and they thought, no, there's nothing here that's newsworthy. She is completely um, de- optimistic out of the of the score settling which you'd think the party would be in right now so it's more of an historical document but i would certainly say it's a it, it's a useful one and to me it also um helped explain theresa may quite a lot the way that she sees herself as an avenger that she kind of she saw herself as being somebody who was virtuous standing up for the public and was out to quash various enemies that kind of explains her position to the police, who, who, come out, who come out very badly from her book. She doesn't seem to like the police very much. And also, it also explains, and I don't know, um, Gavin, you'll have, you have worked with her, you'll have seen the side of her character, but she was quite taciturn. You know, she was never one for um, really... Sometimes it seems that she didn't like communication. And I couldn't work out why you would then become a politician if you didn't like communicating. <laughs> But now and again, she would come up with a blaze of hilarious glory when it came down to machine-gunning her enemies. I mean, I'll never forget her coup de force at the Spectator Awards ceremony where we, um, she stood up at the end and then gave this acceptance speech where she just went for enemy after enemy after enemy. It was I've never seen anything like it. Boris Johnson, um, it was um, Craig Oliver, absolutely destroyed, lacerated, lacerated. And the juxtaposition between this kind of Xena warrior princess mode and the other sort of mild-mannered accountant for the rest of it, I could never work out. But reading the book, it did seem to me how annoyed she was by what she regarded as self-serving, vain politicians who put themselves first and the country second. 
And she very much identifies as somebody who does things the other way around. Perhaps why she's still in the House of Commons right now, serving Maidenhead, doing her job from the back benches. The last award she won for us was backbencher of the year. And I think to her, to a greater extent when I'd realised, this is what it's all about. It's about public service. She's got a very clear definition of it. And she's got little time for politicians who think that politics is a stage that would ele elevate them and allow them to become, to develop a career in something else. Yes, I, I think that last point is spot on. You know, people who go into politics just to be a minister and then when they've got as far as they think they're going to get on the ministerial ladder, they're off. She has very little time for that at all. And people often ask me, how's she doing? And I sort of say, well, look, she, she's got this job that she loves. She absolutely loves being the MP for Maidenhead. And I think it's good for our politics, the former prime ministers, to stick around in the House of Commons. Gavin, if there is one political enemy in the book, it is John Burkow. What do you make of that? Yeah, I I, th I think the relationship with the Speaker was, was difficult, particularly during the Brexit period. There were a couple of rulings he made. I, I won't bore everyone with the arcane detail of where we were at the time, but there were a couple of times he made rulings that caught everybody, I think, in government completely by surprise. There was, there was one particular moment where there was a motion that under the terms of the House of Commons rules was meant to be unamendable, that he ruled could be amended. So... That was a huge source of frustration at the time, and there are there are I've I've seen in the extracts of the book a passage about that which John has reacted to. So that's definitely someone she touches on. Yeah, Fraser, the book is called The Abuse of Power, and I have to say I did find this a bit ironic given the fact that, as you say in your book review, Windrush the Windrush scandal is not it does not especially get the attention that one might think it deserves. This is also, of course, the former Home Secretary who sent go-home fans after undocumented migrants. I think some will be looking at that book title and thinking that perhaps she didn't always rise to the level that she seems to set for others. Well, of course. I mean, abuse of power is entirely subjective. It's something which any politician can use to attack their enemies. In the book, of course, she's very black and white when it comes to Hillsborough. That, you know, that the, the then Thatcher government, that the police, they were all in cahoots. And this was basically because of their mean-spirited way in which they seen football fans. When it's Windrush, she's all of a sudden shades of grey. She was saying, oh, let's remember these, these civil servants had very difficult jobs to do. They were dealing with people who lied and forged their documents the whole time. Um, and maybe hostile environment wasn't the best phrase to use. That's about as far as she goes in, in concessions. But you, all of a sudden, this again casts, to me, interesting light on why mistakes happen. Of course, if you're the one making the mistake, then you don't see it as black and white. You see it as something which is shades of grey. I dare say, if somebody else were to write the Hillsborough chapter, we, we might also put in the mitigating factors, saying, like, at the time, football hooliganism was on the rise. The police had come out of a very stressful era of the, of the strike. Um, you know, I, mean, you, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to make excuses for it here, but I'm saying that the, her palette moves to shades of grey in Windrush and black and white in Hillsborough. But there's also something else which also struck me. that um, When she's talking about stop and search, again, she faults the police. She was saying that black men were seven times more likely to be stopped and searched than, than white men, and therefore there was injustice. I also remember her as Home Secretary giving a speech about this. And so quite often she would, as Gavin says, on the steps of number 10, she talks about injustices. So it's a template that she's there to recognise. Now, 
I would argue that there can be an abuse of power when politicians are a bit too quick to follow that template, a bit too quick to think, okay, I'm the good guy, they're the bad guys, these are the police, they're stopping and searching seven times as many, so obviously it must be racial bias. Now, there's another way of looking at that. And I remember that there was um, Alistair Palmer, who used to work for Theresa May at the Home Office, once told me that there was another Home Office study they were doing, which was saying, hang on, this seven-to-one ratio isn't quite right. If you actually look at who is on the streets at the time of evening in the hotspot areas, you'll find there is no racial imbalance. If anything, whites are more likely to be stopped. Now, to me, this was quite important information, because if it was true, then the police were not guilty of racial discrimination. And if you go to suggest otherwise, as Home Secretary, you might be in danger of exacerbating race relations. So again, I think that there is um, a danger. I mean, David Cameron did this as well. I remember uh, he, he was saying you're twice as likely if you're black to go to prison than you are to university. That was a complete lie. Um, he got his figures the wrong way around. You're way more likely to go to university than you are to prison. Now, of course, he meant well. Theresa May went well. But if you're a conservative, then sure, one of the faults you might have is that you might be too pro-police. Theresa May makes that point. But another fault you have is sometimes you're a bit too keen to be seen to be progressive. And when David Cameron was doing that front page Sunday Times article saying that blacks are twice as more likely to go to prison than university or some, whatever figure was, he, I think, did an injustice um, to this country. I think that um, he sent an unhelpful message to the parents of young black children and to black children themselves, telling them that the, the, the system was tilted against them in a way that it wasn't. Now, similarly, uh, I, have, I would love to read from Theresa May why she was so sure that this seven-to-one figure was accurate, even when the home, study, home office study that adjusted for the population on the streets at a certain time suggested it wasn't, and whether here she might have been a bit too keen to cast the police in the injustice box and for political reasons to present herself as an avenger. Now, again, I don't say she's especially wicked over this. This is simply politics. Every, polit every politician wants to find a battle to pick. They want that battle to be strategic. They want that battle to show themselves fighting for the principles which they want in general to show what they believe in. But I do think there is a danger for um, politicians who want so much to pose as an avenger of injustice but they exaggerate injustices and in a way they can lead to for people taking a more bleak view of this country and its institutions than is necessary. Gavin, your thoughts? I, I think the, the point I most strongly agree with that Fraser made was, was earlier on when he was saying that when you're involved in something, there's always shades of grey, whereas when you look at something from the outside, you can maybe paint in black and white. And I think if you take the the issue of stop and search. I mean, as someone I, I represent in Croydon Central, which is one of the most ethnically diverse constituencies in the country. So the first issue is beyond whatever the statistics tell you, the perception among young black men is that they are discriminated against by the police. And it obviously matters whether it's true or not, but the perception itself is a problem because it leads to a lack of confidence from people from that community towards policing. And most of the police officers I work with in Croydon recognised that that was a problem that they needed to address. And indeed, the issue was hugely granular. If you talk to young people, they would say there was a huge difference between the local police officers from Croydon, who they tended to know, and what was called the TSG, which was the sort of London-wide support team that might be brought in if there was a particular problem, who they didn't know and they would perceive as much more hostile to them. So, you know, the issue, as I've just demonstrated in the last minute, is complex. And 
when you're when you're involved in these things, I think you automatically tend to paint in shades of grey. Whereas when you're a politician trying to make a big point, you tend to simplify things to black and white because that's the way to try and kind of get your your message across. And I think if you, the other point I probably make in relation to to Windrush, it always seemed to me that there were two different issues here, which is one is how did we end up. Um, I think undeniably doing a grave injustice to a cohort of people who had an absolute right to be in this country. And there the story is complex and goes over multiple governments. It goes right back to the original government when people were arriving in this country that didn't give people paperwork through the Labour government uh, under Blair and Brown and certainly then the Conservative government when Theresa herself was Home Secretary. And the separate issue about what our approach as a country should be as to how easy it is we make it for people to live here illegally. So that phrase, hostile environment, was intended to speak to making it difficult for people that shouldn't be here but were here. But there's both, I think, a legitimate political debate about whether it's a good phrase or not. And then there's also a critical question, which is how is it that people who did have a right to be here but couldn't prove it in terms of paperwork got caught up in a policy that was never intended to attach them. And I, final point, I very much agree with with both of the points that Fraser started our discussion on, which is a institution's instinct to be overly defensive. You know, when I started in politics as a, as a local councillor, one of the things that struck me is councils were both meant to be the voice of the local community, but they also provided lots of services. And whenever there was a problem in one of those services, their instinct was always to defend the service and not to speak up for the community who were concerned about that service. And then also a trend that Fraser will have seen, I, I would guess, among hundreds of politicians, which is it's much easier to criticise your opponents when they do something wrong. And politicians tend to take a different line when one of their mates does something or an organisation they approve of does the same wrong thing. Now, but this is why, by the way, I think I gave her book three stars. This is such an important point, the ways in which institutions become corrupt and what can be done to fix it. Because it's never, I mean, you, you can put some of the best politicians in the world as home secretary, but the system itself might be so dysfunctional that something like this could happen and you wouldn't be told. Now, here, I would like to take the rather unusual step of enlisting Lenny Henry, the BBC comic, who, uh, when he was giving the, um, the speeches on the 25th memorial of, of Stephen Lawrence's um, death, had a point to say, which Theresa May says in her book, that she was listening to him, and she was struck by what he had to say. Here's a clip. Who's got four pieces of documentation for every year that we're alive? Now, in her book, she says that she um, was in the audience, she felt very uncomfortable. I mean, Lenny Henry was aiming his re remarks at her. But she went back to number 10 and she asked her officials, look, is Lenny Henry right? Are we really asking people for four pieces of documentary evidence for every year they were in the country? It would be absurd if we were doing that. She says in a book that only later did she find out that he was right when the report came back. Now, to me, this raises two really serious points about the governance of this country. One was that even the Prime Minister couldn't get a straight answer to that question. Are we asking for four pieces of evidence or not? You'd imagine, wouldn't you, if you were the Prime Minister, you'd have a whole bunch of people who would give you your answers within two hours. But no, this is what you hear from politicians. I think it's really important that they come out of government and admit this, that the power they've got is nothing like what you might think from the outside or what you might hope 
as a taxpayer. You, you, you're sitting there, you press believers, quite often it doesn't work. You've got some ministers who have to FOI their own report departments sometimes to get information out of them. But the other question I think is really important is this. Why did it take Lenry Henry, a BBC comedian, to point out to the Prime Minister of his country what her officials were asking people to do? Now, I say this not to criticise her at all, but this shows to me that the real problem here was the mechanism for flagging things that are going wrong. That mechanism was not working. The reporting system was not working. If you read Matthew Said's brilliant book, Black Box Thinking, he starts off talking there about how important it is that in the airline industry, if you have a near miss, they really scrutinise each other. So they've got a great reporting system now where if anything goes halfway wrong, they report it up. But if you've got the kind of institutional reflex, institutional arse covering, you might call it, that institution does not want to know if things go wrong. The institution's instinct is to cover it up, to send a message that is unhelpful to report when things are going wrong. If that's happening, then you end up with a situation where Lenry Henry's telling the Prime Minister what's happening, because in the institution, that message isn't getting up by other methods. Now, this is a really important point, which is why I tend to vote Conservative rather than Labour. It's my belief that this sort of institutional corruption is endemic in any large institution. And the larger institutions are, the more likely you are to see this. I also think that we as a country are more at risk of this because the institutions of government have never been bigger or, for that matter, never more intrusive because I think there is a liberal tent bent in government now where the government is, I mean, Theresa May says in her book that she was tightening up the ratchet time and time again if people wanted to open bank accounts or get a doctor's appointment, they just needed to provide more evidence. Now, in that way, as the government becomes more illiberal, going more towards an identity cards thing, more towards a show-your-paper society, the more intrusive it becomes, the greater the scope for people to get caught within the snares and the traps of the government's machine. And that's why I think um, smaller governments are better than bigger ones and why I would support politics which makes institutions smaller and the public bigger. Uh, although I was noticing that wasn't Theresa May's conclusion at the end. She seemed to think that if the better people were in charge of it, the system could be made to work. Dominic Cummings also believed in the perfectibility of government systems. I'm a liberal. I've got a very low opinion of the, our chances of getting perfect politicians, perfect ministers or perfect systems. The best thing you can do is therefore lead, learn the lessons of Theresa May's book and other examples and try to keep these institutions small and keep the methods for being able to look into them, FOI requests, reporting, etc., open data. Those are the tools that you need to stand a better chance of finding out what is going wrong and who are the victims of the abuses of power that she talks about in her book. I definitely share the view that there is a danger when institutions get too big that you get the kinds of problems that Fraser said, but there is a, there is a flip side here as well to the, the answer to the question, why did it take Lenny Henry to make this point to the Prime Minister? Which is that the people that were being affected by the failure of government were people that didn't have a voice. Yeah, if they were, if they were a different group of people who were well represented among MPs themselves or journalists, you can bet your bottom dollar it would have come to public attention much quicker. But it was a cohort of people that don't have a strong voice in our society and therefore yeah, we're meant to have a, a strong representative democracy. MPs should have been hearing this at their local constituency surveys, but they weren't. And there's a question there about how that bit of the system failed, as well as how the sort of government bureaucracy failed to accurately tell the Prime Minister what was going on.
at the risk of extending this podcast for a bit longer, I think this is, to me, one of the most important points in public life right now. I mean, just two weeks ago, we had the case of Andy Malkinson, who was wrongfully imprisoned for a rape he did not commit. And then we find out from the files, the the Crown Prosecution Service had evidence seven years before he was released that there was the DNA of another man on the vest of the victim. In other words, DNA proof he didn't commit his crime. Those sorts of people have got nowhere near the clout that a middle-class parent being denied a first choice of school has got. And also, I write in the Daily Telegraph about the 5.4 million people in out-of-work benefits. Uh, The fact that, like, a fifth of Liverpool, Manchester, a quarter of Middlesbrough and Blackpool are in out-of-work benefits. Why isn't there more grievance about that? Why isn't there more outrage about the way that people who are capable of work are being written off by the system as if they're not? That's because these people don't have a voice. And by the way, there's millions, literally millions of them. So I think that we conduct these podcasts like this and national debates in the things that make the headlines are nationally important. But I think I completely agree with Gavin and also with Theresa May in her book, that there is a whole demographic there who really struggle to be heard because voices like theirs have got no proper representation, that there isn't particularly much media interest in the stories they've got to tell. And as a result, we can have these burning injustices carrying on in this democracy because local papers have never been weaker. Journalism is getting weaker as well. Newspapers are hemorrhaging staff, hemorrhaging investigative ability. So our ability, the kind of safety nets that used to be there are getting weaker all the time. And the potential for these... um, for the miscarriages of justice and the abuse of power, I think, is greater than ever before. So it's a really important theme, and in a way I actually prefer it to her memoirs of who said what to whom and what desk, because it's, um, it's something we all need to be discussing. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Gavin. And thanks for listening.